We continue our uh, sermon series in the book of Malachi. Uh, Just a reminder, this is our Advent series about faithfully waiting. And this is the last book of the Old Testament. It was the last prophecy uh, where God explained to the people how to faithfully wait for Jesus to come the first time. And it is instructing us how to faithfully wait for Jesus to come the second time. And so we are in Matthew, or sorry, Malachi chapter 2. Uh, we'll start at verse 10 and then read through Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? How do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Well, on our first Sunday of Advent, we learned that faithfully waiting means that we can hope in God uh, simply because he loves us, And he has chosen us and he has promised that we will get to see him glorify himself. And then last week we saw that we have peace with God through the perfect sacrifice of our perfect high priest. And when we see what Christ has done for us, 
we respond with gratitude and our whole lives become a living sacrifice of worship to God. And this week we turn to the topic of joy. And I'm sure it was very evident in that passage how we would find joy. But Christian joy is also a gift when we hope in God because we understand that he loves us and chose us, and when we have peace with God simply because we believe that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice and our perfect high priest, then we have joy. This is the joy of our salvation that David refers to in Psalm 51. So when someone truly understands the gospel, that all of their sins are forgiven, that they are completely accepted in Christ by him and him alone— There is no other way to receive that news than with joy. But how do we continue to live a joy-filled life? Once we have received the word with joy, how do we avoid the world choking away the joy of our salvation? And so to answer that question this morning, there are three uh, topics that we will explore. First is the deceitfulness of worldly joy. Second, we're going to look at the fruit of worldly joy— And finally, the source of enduring joy. So the world promises us uh, that if we follow our heart and we do what we think will make us happy, then we will have joy. And in our passage this morning, Malachi is challenging God's people for three specific ways that they are seeking to find joy apart from him. He's challenging them for marrying non-believers. He's challenging them for getting unbiblical divorces. And he's challenging them for questioning God's goodness. And wouldn't you know it that here, 2,500 years later, these are still uh, very real temptations for us to try to find joy apart from God as well. Now, before we go on, let me just say that uh, these are very sensitive topics. Um, Every single one of us in this room has been impacted by divorce. Uh, We maybe have married non-believers Uh, We know someone that we love who has done so. And I am not going to be able to address every nuance of these topics this morning. I'm simply going to teach this text, uh, which unfortunately will not be able to cover every every aspect. Um, And so I'd like to encourage you with three things. Uh, Number one, please know that uh, if, if something that is said this morning rips off a scab or is painful— Uh, My door is open. I would love to sit down with you and pray with you and have further conversations with you. Uh, Number two, I would like to remind you of what we talked about last week about the law and the gospel. Uh, When we hear God's law, uh, the purpose of God's law is to drive us to Christ. When we are reminded that sin is evil, we ought not think, oh no, I'm evil. That should not be a shocker to us. The purpose of the law is to drive us to Christ, to his forgiveness and his grace. And then the law then shows us how to live in grateful obedience uh, to his commands. And then finally, please note that these are not the unforgivable sin. Um, Every sin that we commit can be repented of, and we can find joy in the Lord uh, simply by returning to the realities of what Christ has done for us. Now, in verse 11, Malachi says this, He says, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. 
Notice the problem here is not marrying foreign women. Uh, In fact, we have uh, in the history of Israel, Rahab and Ruth were foreign women. But those women gave up their foreign gods and came and worshipped the God of Israel. So the the issue at play here is marrying women who are still worshiping their foreign gods. And at this time, these marriages were usually about money and power. If if you would like to have, you know, more trade partners and and expand your business, the way to do that was uh, to find other people outside of the nation of Israel and give them your daughters and they would give you their daughters. That's how things worked back then. But God has promised to provide for his people. Uh, They weren't content with God's provision, and so they went outside of God's plan, and they risked bringing in women who worshipped foreign gods who could influence the nation of Israel. The reasons that we may be tempted to marry a non-believer are much different than that. Uh, the, The sin is exactly the same, but the thing that motivates that is different. So in our culture, we really value the feeling of love We really value uh, security. And so those things will motivate us uh, to marry somebody who is not a believer. Our Christian culture tells us that unless we find our soulmate, we'll never be happy in this life. Movies and commercials and social media are all constantly telling us that the only source of deep and lasting joy is if you can meet the one. And it's not just single people who feel this temptation. The world promises us joy if we leave our spouse, if we think that we have found our soulmate. Another strong temptation to marry a non-believer is if we meet someone who, who has means. How easy is it to imagine a life of comfort and security and nice vacations? And we may love this person or we may not. But they are offering us a life we couldn't have otherwise, and that temptation is very powerful. And so what's God's verdict on this? He says in verse 11 that it's being unfaithful. He says it's detestable to him because it has this polluting effect, not only in our lives, but in the lives of our community. We weren't made to live outside of God's will for us, just like a bed wasn't made as a litter box which is why God calls it detestable, right? It's, it's using something that was made for one thing in a way that, that just isn't right for how that thing was made. Another way the world tries to tell us that joy can be found outside of God's will for us is through an unbiblical divorce. In verse 14, Malachi says, The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. See, marriage is a covenant. And there are promises made in a covenant that are meant to hold up even when one person fails to meet their obligations. And the reason is because a covenant is a promise made before God himself. Malachi tells them that the Lord was a witness to your marriage. Now Malachi is not talking about a biblical divorce here. He's not talking about divorce that happens because of adultery or abuse, or divorce that happens because your spouse turns out to be a non-believer and they walk away from you. Malachi is strictly dealing with someone who leaves a marriage even though the other person is their partner, he says. And that word partner could be translated companion. 
This is someone who is forcing through a divorce and leaving their companion without biblical grounds. This is someone who may no longer like their spouse. They may may not enjoy the ongoing conflict they experience in the relationship. They may have grown apart and have little in common any longer. They may feel trapped by the marriage because they can't imagine living the rest of their life with this person that they wouldn't marry now if they could do it all over again. But it is in those struggles that God is calling us to trust him and that the world's offer of joy is a lie. And that joy is found in trusting that God's will is best for us. Ah, but Pastor Patrick, didn't you just say that marrying a non-believer is a sin? Well, I married a non-believer, so I'm free to divorce them, right? Actually, no. After marrying that non-believer, God's will is now for you to remain in that marriage because to divorce them would be a sin. God has now made you one with them. Paul addresses this exact situation in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Why? He goes on and he says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified, which just means made holy, through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So if we become a believer after we're married, or if we do marry a non-believer, once we're married, once we have children with that person, God's will for us is clear. We're now called to that husband or that wife and those children as the person who brings God's joy and holiness into that home. And our world comes hard on these two points. Our world says joy cannot be found in a loveless marriage. Our our world says joy cannot be found unless you meet the one, regardless of whether they know the Lord or not. But God says joy is found in trusting him. Even if to trust him means being lonely. Even if to trust him means struggling through a difficult marriage. This is why. This is why. We must be convinced that God's word is more true than what we think and what we feel. For these very situations. One final area that Malachi addresses is the goodness and justice of God. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, you have, uh, yeah, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the justice of God? So let's not forget that Malachi is writing to people who are a hundred years removed from returning to the land of Israel. And when they returned, they thought they were going to return to the, the fullness of everything that the prophet said was going to happen. They, they imagined a, a King David ruling eternally on his throne with a, with a massive temple that Ezekiel talks about in um, chapters 40 through 49 of his book. But instead, they came back and they're still under the thumb of Persia. They're poor farmers dealing with, with uh, insects and drought. 
There's conflict from the surrounding nations all around them. Instead of saying, you're right, God, we have sinned. We have knowingly and willingly broken your covenant. We've married unbelievers. We've divorced our spouses for our own selfish purposes. We repent. Forgive us. They don't do that. Instead, they accuse God of blessing evil people. And they question whether God is just. Instead of agreeing with God about their sin, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they point the finger at somebody else and they blame God for not being just. This is the way of the world, right? The God of the Bible is unjust, the world says. How can God be all-powerful and this world be full of evil? They demand justice and they forget that they are full of evil as well. So that is worldly joy. But what will be the fruit of seeking worldly joy? What, what happens to people who God loves and who God has chosen and who have discovered peace with God through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, but then get deceived by the world? What are the consequences of worldly joy? In verse 10, Malachi asked the people some rhetorical questions, one of which is, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So if God loves them, if God has chosen them, if God offers hope and peace and joy to them through the blood of an eternal covenant of grace and promise, why do they profane it? This would be like an Olympic athlete who, who just barely misses making the cut. But then the coach is given one at-large uh, spot that he can offer to anyone on the team. And so he offers it to this guy. And now all of a sudden, he's, he's on the Olympics. His, his dream has come true. W would he show up overweight and spend the two weeks of the Olympics um, sightseeing? No. That would be to profane the Olympics. That would be to profane the Olympic team. That would be to take this opportunity of grace that he's been offered because he didn't make the cut and to, and to just squander it. And it's the same thing for us when we are unfaithful to God, when he's been nothing but faithful to us. And to the person who marries an unbeliever, Malachi says, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. So the consequences for the whole community, if someone were to marry an unbeliever, are so severe that Malachi prays that God would remove these people from Israel, even if they're still coming to the temple to worship. By simply marrying an idol worshiper, these people become so tainted and so compromised and such a threat to the community that Malachi asks God to remove them. Whoa. Now this would not be something that we would pray now. We are not prophets. God does not speak directly to any one of us and give us this kind of specific divine insight into what would be best for our community. But the truth is, by marrying an unbeliever, one of two things will happen. Either we marry an unbeliever, and that person causes us to drift away from the church and our devotion to God and his people until we actually remove ourselves from the community. 
or we would grow closer to Christ all alone. And the sorrow and the sadness of not being able to share Christ with the person we have become one flesh with will be with us every day for the rest of our lives unless God should be so merciful and bring that person to saving faith. And our children are at risk. When only one parent is a believer, the children have it modeled to them that to not believe is a legitimate option in this life. And to the person who divorces their spouse, Malachi says this, he says, You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offering or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. So here is someone who's obviously in great emotional pain. They're coming to the Lord with their offering. They're suffering. They're full of sorrow and sadness. But God does not accept them. He's not sympathetic to them. He's not comforting them. He's not looking with favor on their worship. They cry and they weep, but the Lord is not pleased with them. Why? Because they walked away from their spouse. They left the person they made a covenant with before the Lord, and God witnessed the covenant, and they swore before God and all those witnesses to remain together in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad. And so these are not tears of repentance, because God will always always accept us if we come to him repentant and and truly sorrowful over our sin. These are tears of worldly sorrow. These are the tears of someone suffering the consequences of their sin that they willfully and rebelliously chose. Malachi goes on. He says, and what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So what does God seek? He says godly offspring. God desires his people to train their children up in the Lord. And divorce has a massive impact on whether or not children will continue in the faith. I I looked it up, and the the statistics I found uh, were, I found them on several websites, but it said 67% of children raised by Christian parents uh, remain religious. And so still a third, a third of of children raised in Christian homes with with two parents will walk away from God. But 50% of children raised in divorce homes where one parent is a Christian, remains religious. So that's a huge drop-off. Now to those who are victims of an uh, unbiblical divorce or a biblical divorce, or to those who have already gotten an unbiblical divorce, there is great hope. And there is grace upon grace. But to those considering an unbiblical divorce, this is a great word of warning. In verse 16, we're told that when we willingly and rebelliously divorce our spouse, that it is a hateful, violent act. (laughs) You guys, Malachi is just not sugarcoating this. When we walk away from a marriage for any other reason than clear biblical grounds, we are tearing apart something God has put together. 
God has made something one, and we are saying that we know better than God. And the consequences for a faithless life can be severe. This means no one ever chooses worldly promises of joy over godly joy without also hating their neighbor, whether it's our spouse, our children, our broader family, our church family. These decisions devastate a community as we all know. Which is why Malachi says, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. A literal translation there is guard yourself in your spirit. Because as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You see, our world says, follow your heart. Do what you want to do. And the Bible says, your heart is deceitful above all else. Friends, the only thing that we can anchor our souls to is God's word. And finally, for those who justify pursuing joy as the world offers it because they doubt God's goodness and demand justice, God says this. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Now, as we know from our recent study of Matthew, this is... Uh, This first messenger is John the Baptist. But Malachi is not talking about Jesus' first coming here. He's answering the people's charge about whether God is good and just by pointing to Jesus' second coming when he will come suddenly to judge. And Malachi is saying, you want the Lord to come? You desire his coming so bad that you want justice? You don't know what you're asking because no one will be able to stand when he comes. To self-righteously point the finger and demand justice from God means we have no idea how sinful we are. And the world will tempt us to believe that joy can be found outside of God's will for us. And if we try to find joy outside of his will, We'll profane the covenant, potentially remove ourselves from God's people. We may not be able to pass our faith on to our children. We'll be hating and committing violence against people we're supposed to love and protect. And it just makes us confused about whether or not God is good and just. This is the fruit of pursuing worldly joy. So how can we have enduring joy? How can we have the joy of our salvation for a lifetime. Now, one might think, after everything that's been said so far, that the way to have joy is to not marry an unbeliever and to not get a divorce and to not accuse God of being unjust. But that would be to make obedience equal to joy And and if obedience, if we had to obey in order to have joy, then all of us would be in trouble. Because that's impossible. No. We can have joy simply by knowing a few things. First, we have to know what we are. Listen to how Malachi begins our passage from this morning. He says, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? And so these are rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is yes. And Malachi could have simply said, God is our father. Of all people of the earth, he has made us his children. 
The nation of Israel was miraculously created into a people by God. And he is their father. And now in the New Testament, we are God's adopted children and we are called new creations and we have been recreated into something radically different than we were before we received God's promises by faith. And so we don't live faithless lives pursuing worldly joy anymore simply because that's not what we are. That's not what we are anymore. The the New Testament has this, this picture, right, where where we are already something, but not yet, fully. And the encouragement is to be what you are. Remember that you are a, God, a God's child and that he, is, he has made you one of his children. The reason we don't marry a non-believer is because that is not what we are. This is how the Apostle Paul put it. He said, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What, what do we have in common with a non-believer? It's like mixing light and darkness or righteousness and wickedness. It's oil and water. It's not what we are. It's not what we were made for. If the greatest joy in this life that we have is in the Lord, If we found hope and peace in the context of our relationship with him, how could we want to enter into the most intimate relationship in this world with someone who does not share that joy? If you're free in Christ, why would we want to marry someone who's enslaved to sin? We are no longer the kind of people who can be ultimately satisfied by worldly joy. The second thing we have to know to have enduring joy for a lifetime is whose we are. Look at verse 15. In the middle of challenging the people about their unbiblical divorces, Malachi says, Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. You see, we don't pursue worldly joy anymore because we don't belong to ourselves. We're not the captain of our soul. We've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, it's the love of Christ that he gives us as a free gift, regardless of anything that we've ever done, that compels us to live for him. Because we belong to him. We have been bought and purchased with his precious blood. And the last thing that we need to know to have enduring joy is that the ability to live faithful lives in obedience to God's commands is also a gift. Look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 3. Malachi says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So you would expect right here Malachi to say, yeah, you've you've done all these bad things and when the Lord shows up, he's gonna judge you. But that's not what Malachi says. He says, look, I know that you're struggling with sin. I know that, that you're tempted to believe that joy can be found in all the places that the world says joy can be found. 
And I know that you want God to come back in justice. And yeah, he's, he's coming back. But he's going to refine you. He's going to purify you. He's going to make you righteous. This is, the, this is the promise of the new covenant. That we will be given a new heart. And that we will long to obey his commands. This is the promise of the gospel. When God saves us from our sins, he not only promises to forgive us of all of our sins, but he promises to transform us from the inside out and to purify us. We are free not only from the penalty of sin, which gives us peace with God through the sacrifice of Christ, but we are free from the power of sin because Christ refines us and makes us into the kind of people who will bring acceptable offerings of righteousness to God. Listen to this. We are tempted to choose worldly joy not because God hasn't saved us, right? As sinners, we will always for the rest of this life be tempted to choose worldly joy. We are tempted to choose worldly joy not because God hasn't saved us, but because we don't believe all that he has saved us from. He's not only saved us from the penalty that we deserve from our sin. But he has freed us from the power of it. Listen to what Paul says in Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And listen to what the grace of God does. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. God's grace teaches us to say no because that's not what we are anymore. We belong to Jesus. He loves us and chose us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Christian, this is who you are. So when we hear the words of our final verse, we don't fear. Listen, Malachi says, so I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So this list, this list includes the uh, immoral communists and the greedy capitalists. All of us, every single one of us is on this list somewhere. We're all condemned when we stand before God in this trial. And the question is not whether or not we are the people on this list. The question is whether or not Jesus took our condemnation for us. And if he did, we can know that he not only forgave us of the penalty of those sins, but we can believe that he has freed us of the power of them as well. So we can know that we're not enslaved to all the ways the world tells us that we can find joy. This grace is free. It's available to you this morning if you married a non-believer. It is free. It's available to you if you pursued an unbiblical divorce. 
It's free and available to you if you are the victim of someone else pursuing an unbiblical divorce. You belong to him. He is your father. He is remaking you into a new creation. And his grace is purifying you. And if you're dating a non-believer, or if you're considering a non-biblical divorce, you may be feeling convicted this morning. But that is God's grace to you as well. That's the Spirit offering you true joy through repentance and through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And so now as we struggle with sin, which we all will do until the Lord returns, we can always return to Christ for forgiveness and grace in every failure. And at the same time, we can know that he is making us into his likeness in this life. We can know that nothing will ever separate us from his love. And we can know that we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So do not fear, weary saints. These are God's promises to you. And all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and, and we see, Lord, that sin is, is evil and very destructive. And yet at the same time, we see that you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. You stand there with open arms, ready and willing to forgive all who turn to you in repentance and faith, all who cling to Christ for our righteousness because we have none of it on our own. All of us, Father, are tempted to find joy in all the ways the world says that we can find joy, and all of us do seek joy in those ways, God. May you protect us. May you cause us to lean into this community so that we may stand together beholding your face and be transformed together in ever-increasing glory, which comes from you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.